Welcome. Church of the Advent is an Anglican congregation in Denver, Colorado, that seeks to share in the life of God by redefining and reorienting everything around the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope you are challenged, encouraged, and move closer toward the gospel by this week's message. Good morning. What a delight to be with all of you to celebrate the resurrection of Easter this morning. Truly glad you've joined us. I know for some in the non-Anglican tradition for our visitors, the liturgy can be a little awkward. It's like, um, like C.S. Lewis says, it's like learning to dance. At first you're thinking very carefully about your steps, and you're like, what am I doing with my body? But eventually you kind of enter into a cadence. And so thank you for your bravery in being here this morning and just kind of learning to dance with us. Really glad you're here. Uh, This morning is actually the first in an eight-week sermon series I'm beginning this Sunday. It's based on Tim Keller's book on the resurrection, Hope in Times of Fear. In the wake of his pancreatic cancer diagnosis and in the wake of the pandemic, he wrote a book about what the resurrection has to say to us in the times we're living in. So the point this morning is really just to introduce the series to you all. I hope you'll join us if you can for the next eight weeks. And then second, to address the basic question at the heart of Easter, Did, did the resurrection actually happen? Is this all just religious pomp and circumstance? Or did it actually happen and everything is different? So whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus or you're a committed skeptic or any, anywhere in between, I invite you this morning to just consider afresh again the importance of the resurrection and then the reality of the audacious claim that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So first, let's look at the importance of the resurrection. All right, so there's a, there's, the preachers know this thing called the 2 a.m. test. I talk about it sometimes. If Jenny elbows me in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. and says, what's your sermon about? Here's, here it is in one sentence. <laughs> and if you don't know how to answer that, you're not prepared to preach, they, they say in the textbooks. It's this, the reality of the resurrection, that this really happened, means the reality of hope. We actually have a robust hope. The reality of the resurrection means we have the reality of hope. In October 2021, the, um, the uh, Academy of, American Academy of Pediatrics declared a national health emergency for children's mental health. And they cited soaring rates of depression and anxiety and trauma and loneliness and suicidality. They shared a laundry list then of sobering mental health stats. Between March and October of 2020, in the ER, visits for suspected suicide attempts rose 50% among girls 12 to 17 years old. In 2020 in America, there were 45,000 people who died from gun violence, and half of that from their own hands. The last hundred years on earth, many people will tell you, have been, by, by everyone's estimation, the bloodiest in world history. Doesn't it seem obvious that the world today is facing a crisis of hope? The 20th century has shown us that kind of enlightenment hope, that is, hope in in reason and science and technology to usher in world peace and prosperity. That was was misplaced. You know, in the first half of this century, the last century, humanity faced two world wars, a plague, the Great Depression, was on the eve of a nuclear-armed Cold War, which endured until 1989. And then now 30 years on from the Cold War, Russia's insane violence is now further destabilizing an already fragile world order. And Ukrainian teachers have exchanged books for assault rifles. And meanwhile, there's a growing political tribalism in America. It's a a culture with a a vacated center, is what sociologists call it. We we no longer have a shared set of common good, like a shared agreement about what the common good is. 
And this is eroding institutions and our, and our trust in one another. I mean, the latest example, the, the latest controversy du jour is, the, is Florida's so-called Don't Say Gay Bill. Now, Disney, formerly a, a sort of peaceful territory, a demographic-spanning middle ground of American life, is now seen as either diabolical and, and, and perverted or, or a beacon of virtuous progress, depending on your vantage point. And there's very little room for middle ground. The moral, the political, the social confusion of our day has left many feeling like water plants, that is to say, rootless and adrift, disconnected, unstable. I mean, in our own families and in our churches, in our own hearts, we're facing a crisis of hope. Andrew Sullivan concludes, he says, profound discontent and despair and addiction and loneliness, these persist even in the most advanced societies. Why? Because as we've attained more and more progress, we've lost something that undergirds all of it. Meaning, cohesion, a deeper kind of happiness than, all of our, than the meeting of all of our earthly needs can provide. Sullivan hints at why enlightenment hope fell short. Because it aimed at our earthly needs, not our spiritual needs. And so the very good gifts of reason and science and technology, they go a long way to addressing the symptoms, and we're grateful for that, but they cannot cure, they cannot cure what ultimately ails the human heart. They can't cure self-interest. There's no vaccination against racial bias and hatred. You cannot surgically remove pride from the heart or violence from the heart. There's no Uber that can pick you up in despair and fear and then drop you off in hope. So where is hope? Where is hope in times of sickness and instability and fear? Writing to a persecuted and victimized and dying people, 1 Peter 1 says this, In his great mercy, God, God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so your faith and hope are in God. Well, that sounds very spiritual. Great. But how does that work? Well, that's the aim of this sermon series, really, is, you know, to explain that. But for now, I want to say it does at least this much. The resurrection of Jesus sets us in a different story. It sets us in a different story altogether. You know, the news cycle sets us in one story, doesn't it? Tonight on the broadcast, death, murder, crime, war abroad. Come back tomorrow to hear about how the same thing is happening in a Walmart parking lot near you. And I'm joking, but, but seriously, it's so depressing. The story that we're just immersed in all the time, like the news just keeps getting worse and worse, and it comes faster and faster. And if that's the story I live in, then hope is really hard to come by. When COVID first hit, there were... Uh, Early church historians began reminding us of the first Christians' response to the plagues of ancient Rome, of which there were many. While others fled Rome to safety, to the countryside, the Christians stayed, and they cared for the sick, and they died in the process. Why? Because for Christians, life has always meant to be transitory. Life was always meant to be transitory. It is part of a, we are part of a larger story, the story of eternity, the story of the resurrection, And so the early Christians, trusting, deeply believing and trusting in the truth of the resurrection story, it happened. They knew death was not a period on the sentence of their life. So writing for Christianity Today last year, Tish Harrison put it this way. She said, 
The resurrection is the only evidence on earth that love ultimately triumphs over death, that weakness ultimately prevails over strength, that beauty outlives ashes. If Jesus is risen in actual history, there is hope that our mourning, our deepest mourning, will be comforted and that death will not have the final word. That's the message of Easter. Death is not the end of the story. That was the resurrection hope that sent early Christians into the plagues to love, like Christ, unto death. If Jesus really rose then, you know, our children's mental health crisis, gun violence, suicide, war, national instability, political fracturing, all of it, that is not the definitive story of history. The reality of the resurrection means the reality of hope. In Man's Search for Meaning, Dr. Viktor Frankl chronicles his brutal experience in the Nazi concentration camps during World War II. This is a famous illustration of the power of hope. His story details how many of his fellow prisoners passed away, not ultimately from lack of food or lack of medicine, but from a lack of hope. He writes this. He says, A fairly well-known composer confided in me one day, and this is within the camp as they're suffering brutally, fairly well-known composer confided in me one day, Dr. Frankel, I've had a strange dream. A voice told me that I could ask whatever I wished, and my question would be answered. So I asked the voice to know when our camp would be liberated and when our sufferings would come to an end. And Dr. Frankel says, I responded, what did your voice answer? And secretly the man whispered to me, March 30, March 30th. And when he told me about his dream, Dr. Frankel says, he was full of hope. But as the promised day drew near and our freedom came no closer, suddenly the man fell ill. And on March 30th, he became delirious and lost consciousness. And on March 31st, he was dead. So Frankel concludes, any attempt to restore a person's inner strength had first succeed in showing them some future goal. In other words, hope is like food. Hope is like water for the soul. We cannot live without it. If the resurrection didn't happen, then everyone and everything is like a raft caught in a hurricane at sea. It will eventually, everything will eventually be swallowed up into the lurking abyss below and be forgotten. But if the resurrection is the true story of history, then the ark of Christ sails defiantly into the storm and Christ begins gathering his own from the breakers and the waves and he plunges through the vortex that didn't have the strength to hold him and he captains his people to the sunrise of new creation and life eternal. Peter is saying that because of the resurrection of Jesus, our hope doesn't need to be in the fickle victories of technology or reason or scientific achievement, but in the certain and the eternal victory and strength of God. This living hope, says Peter, it's like a new birth. It, it goes in us like fire and it melts and reforges us from within. In the poetic summary of Clement of Alexandria, the resurrection of Christ has turned all of our sunsets into dawns. The resurrection of Christ has turned all of our sunsets into dawns. How does this living hope turn our sunsets into dawns? Again, that's the series. We're going to look especially at how the resurrection of Jesus changes our relationships and justice and suffering in the future. But before we go there in the coming weeks, this morning I just want to go here. Did the resurrection happen? Did it happen or not? You know, for many modern people, the claim is an intellectual stretch, if not downright impossibility. 
But 1 Corinthians 15 tells us three things we ought to know before we dismiss the resurrection claim. Three things. First, Christianity is historical. Second, Christianity is reasonable. And third, Christianity is a gracious faith. First, it's historical. Paul summarizes the audacious claim in 1 Corinthians 15. Jesus, he says, I deliver to you. I deliver to you as first importance what I also received. Christ died, was buried, was raised, and appeared to many. So Paul begins with, I deliver. Do you know what gets delivered? Usually on a Sunday morning? Newspapers. News. Paul is not sharing opinions about the way to God. He is sharing history. Either it happened or it didn't. And he says, if it didn't, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. No resurrection, no Christianity. And this is unique, by the way. World religions say, here's how you should live. But Christianity says, here's what Jesus did in history. If it didn't happen in history, says Paul, our preaching is in vain. The Greek word here is kenos, without power. Our preaching is without power because it was not religious and ethical exhortations, as great as they were, that had the power to turn around individual lives and eventually the whole Roman Empire inside out. These revolutions were powered by the jolting reality that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified and then he was buried and then he was alive again. In John Updike's words, make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecule re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. It's precisely because our faith is historical, it is also reasonable. There are at least four common objections I want to just move through quickly and show how 1 Corinthians and other scriptures address them. So first, here's an objection to the resurrection. Maybe you're thinking this yourself. Maybe the resurrection was a legend that developed long after the death of Jesus. But you know what? 1 Corinthians 15, which we've heard read and that I'm talking about, we're not reading Paul's own words. We're actually reading a structured confession of the early church, a creed, if you will. Because in verse 3, Paul says, I received these words and I'm passing them on as one does a creed. And second, the verses are full of vocabulary that Paul never uses. So they're not Paul's words. They're, they're a pre-existing creed he's inheriting. Well, the letter of 1 Corinthians was written 15 to 20 years after Christ's death. So the eminent James Dunn has concluded, we can be entirely confident that this confession, Christ was died and buried and raised, came within months of Jesus' death. So this was no late developed legend. It was an immediate and jolting recognition of the facts. Second, maybe the resurrection was a hallucination or a metaphor, you know, not the real physical deal. But then Paul notes this happened on the third day. He gives this historical event a timestamp. And then Paul goes on to note he appeared to Peter and the 12 and 500 people. And so mob psychology, group psychology might be stretched to explain one or two sightings, but surely not all of them. And then crucially, Paul adds the words, many of these witnesses are still alive, which undermines a third objection. Maybe the disciples just stole the body. Listen, there were a lot of interested parties in producing a body. The Jews, the Romans would have done everything in their power to, to find the body and say, look, you guys are all liars, but nobody did, right? Keller observes that Paul designated 75% of his words in this confession to listing eyewitnesses. Why? Well, he says most of them are still living. In other words, go talk to them. I understand you're skeptical. This is an audacious claim. It's a bold claim. So go talk to the witnesses, your friend, your mother, your father, your cousin, your uncle, your neighbor. 
Or better yet, go talk to the women who were the first ones to see the empty tomb and see the risen Jesus and report the resurrection, which finally cuts against the grain of a fourth objection and final. Maybe the gospel writers are simply making up stories to get people to believe their message. Well, it's common knowledge that in the Greco-Roman context of first century Palestine, a woman's testimony at the time was considered untrustworthy. It would not hold up in court in that day. If the resurrection was was a fabricated account written to get people to believe, to kind of dupe the masses, then that's not a very convincing story to tell, is it? They'd have chosen the wealthy and honorable patriarchs of the town to discover the empty tomb. So this story has all the signs of the awkward truth. Truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. So the scriptures do not ask readers to take a wild leap of faith. They ask readers to be reasonable, to be reasonable. It really boils down to two points. If we only had the empty tomb, Jesus' body could have been stolen. If we only had the testimonies, we could say they had been fantasies. But together, these two facts point to the extraordinary reality of the physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Leading the eminent historian N.T. Wright, he's written a 900-page tome on this, to conclude, the early Christians did not invent the empty tomb. They did not invent the sightings of the risen Jesus. To suggest otherwise is to stop doing history and to enter a fantasy world of our own. No other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering skepticism that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb became empty, how the disciples came to see Jesus, and how their lives and worldviews were transformed. And I would add, and how and why they went to their graves and were martyred brutally for their faith. Not in something that they believed, but in something that they had seen with their own eyes. Christianity is reasonable, you see. Well, let's land the plane with this final exhortation. Believing, believing on rational grounds that this happened is a start, but it's not an end. Because it's easy to become intellectually convinced, but refuse Jesus nonetheless. Because Christianity is historical and it's reasonable, but it's also a gracious faith. After Paul reasons about the resurrection and lists the witnesses, he pivots to his own testimony in verse 9. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And by his grace towards me, it is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Did you hear it? Grace, grace, grace. Prior to his personal encounter with the risen Jesus, Paul fancied himself a righteous man and a seeker of truth as he persecuted Christians. But when he encountered the risen Jesus, everything changed. He was mugged by the reality of the resurrected Christ. He was humbled, and he realized he hadn't been after the truth. He wanted to persecute Christians because it made him feel in control and important. And in a different way, we've all been mugged by reality lately. The pandemic and the war and mental health emergencies and political tensions and fracturing relationships and all kinds of grief. Are we not being mugged by the reality that we are far more fragile and far more sick than we knew? What might bring us hope? What might bring us hope in these times of fear? Not just admitting intellectually that the resurrection happened, but in the words of Brennan Manning, summoning the courage to say yes to the present risenness of Christ. Which means, like Paul, being mugged by the reality of the risen Christ's transforming grace. It means inviting the risen Jesus to enter and inflame your heart with a living hope. It can be hard to accept because it may demand of you what it demanded of Paul, that is, admitting you were wrong. 
you weren't actually seeking the truth, and now everything in your life needs to change? Keller concludes lucidly. He says, did the resurrection happen? Yes. But you will only accept it if you let it confront the reason in your head and the commitments of your heart. And finally, in her Easter article, again, writing for Christianity Today, Harrison reflects on the litany of failures during the first disciples' Holy Week. You know, the disciples, if you follow them through Holy Week to Easter, they they move through arrogance and fear and disloyalty and laziness, and, and they betray Jesus and abandon him in his need. And I wonder if you can relate. I certainly can. So can Harrison. She writes this. She says, This year I went through a difficult season of doubt. During this period, I could not get away from a simple question. Was Jesus resurrected or not? Whatever uncertainty I felt about weaknesses in the church, and I might add whatever pain some of you might have experienced in the church and through the church, and in my own life, she says, whatever frustration I had as I wrestled with the scriptures and difficult questions presented there, I am anchored by the reality that the truth of the gospel does not rest in my own feelings or preferences, but in this man, Jesus, who who he is, what he did, and most importantly, how he triumphed over death. Friends, let the reality of the resurrection of Jesus fill you with hope this Easter. Say yes to him who is presently risen in our midst this morning, and then fear not. For the words of J.I. Packer, the victim of Calvary is now loose and at large. And now as we turn our attention to baptizing and welcoming five souls aboard the ark of Christ, let us again joyfully proclaim again our only hope in life and death. Alleluia. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen. Thanks for listening. We encourage you to take a moment to reflect on what God might be saying to you through what you just heard. For questions, additional information, and resources, please visit adventdenver.com.